If you like this show, I have two requests. Please share it with somebody you think might like it. And also make sure that they know what a podcast is and how to consume it, either on iTunes or Transistor or Spotify. And the second request is, I know you know somebody that would make a great interview. All these conversations are friends of mine, either on social media, LinkedIn, or actually in person. And if you know someone with a great story, please let me know. I'd love to talk to them. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you to everyone that has been listening and commenting and sharing. I really do appreciate it. And with me today is a longtime friend, Jean Hadzi. He is the Senior Executive for Client Services at Optimix, also the VP of NAMIC in Denver. We'll get into that. And uh, quite possibly, uh, in my opinion, the most fascinating gentleman I've met. So, Jean, welcome, and thanks for making the time this morning. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Matt, for having me. I appreciate the time. Yeah, and one of the things that I, uh, I'm starting to do on the podcast is things that I find interesting and um, technology that is, I think, challenging and, and maybe a little bit disruptive. And uh, you're involved with RPA, which is Robot Process Automation. And yes. I'd like to kind of dive into that because, I mean, the first thing I learned, it wasn't actual physical robots, <laughs> you know, with yeah. motors and wheels <laughs> and gears. Right. Um, but what exactly is it? And uh, I'll start it with that. Sure. Yeah. So robotic process automation uh, essentially is just software robotics. Uh, if you want to, you know, summarize it in a different way, you are creating an instance on a desktop or on a server or in the cloud, wherever you have uh, this piece of software sitting. And it's essentially doing all the repetitive tasks that a human would do. It was designed um, really to help reduce the swiveling between applications. And so where you have you know, these monster ERPs like your SAP and your Oracles and so forth, that are really just geared towards you know uh, simplifying business process this actually kind of says well let me take these desperate software systems and rather than designing this really grandiose platform let me just mimic all of the functions and the actions that a user is going to be going through so the clicks the typing the repetitive actions that people just do just to get a, a singular task done and let me just automate that. And so you have a bot that can do, I think it's per operation a tenth of a second, if I remember correctly what the statistic was, um, if I'm using one particular platform out there. And there's several of these platforms that are out there. Some are geared more towards the contact center, some are geared more towards the business process, and usually they tend to overlap. But if you've got you know highly repetitive work, uh, a lot of data entry, if you've got a lot of swiveling, even if there's some minor sophisticated actions that have to take place, um, reading documents, extracting data, extrapolating data. Um, the bot, in quotes, uh, I'm doing air quotes here, um, will go and 
do all of those things and it allows a person rather than you know just doing these menial repetitive tasks to think of more higher level creative thinking um, so it was a very long-winded explanation but um, you know you're able to have the bot go from an excel sheet pull data enter it into a, for, a web form uh, or an rdp session and then you know run a different function or even monitor something um, where it's best used um, where in our particular environment is uh, for um, a, a large ISP, this thing is essentially able to uh, go in and monitor certain systems, trigger alerts, um, do what it needs to do for the business to help you know, mitigate you know, human inter interaction where it's you know, either uh, unnecessary or it's not going to be as quick um, so that's that is the robotic process automation like generalized there's a lot more that's out there that can be done using ai and machine learning um with these bots um that you know i'm not as qualified to explain or as technically <laughs> driven to to bore people with but um that in essence is what it is well, I attended one of your uh, seminars or overviews and I was fascinated by it. And you touched on this briefly and that it's not meant to eliminate a worker. It's meant to make them more efficient. And yes. the other part of that too, was that it's not um, Skynet. It's not running just unsupervised. And I thought that there was, you know, error conditions and guardrails built in that, um, yeah, I think part of that in the sales cycle is addressing people's concerns, maybe misconceptions or, you know, initial uh, experience with it. But I, I was impressed that despite being a technology and an automation that you're approaching it with the person in mind as well. Exactly, Matt. You know, the thing about that, this technology and really when you mention the word robot, people have this um, visual, you know, of an Asmavian sort of you know robots and machines taking over and you know and then you obviously bring in the, the james cameron <laughs> fun <laughs> flick right there for skynet um you know that's all well and good but you know garbage in garbage out right i mean it's it's one of those things that you know it's not programmed to take the place of creative thinking um i think there is ai out there that ha does have that capability but what we're talking about here is really just simple stuff. It's it's the mindless thing that people over time and through exhaustion and through the limited hours in the day will just get tired, just like we all do. We all have to go to sleep. We all have to go grab a snack. We, and in this case, you know, grab our extra pot of coffee to keep ourselves sharp. And no matter how good you are at a at a task, um, if you're banking your entire life on the ability to find these little things and that, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no value in that for you as an individual where there is value is your ability to creatively understand a problem and formulate new solutions that are progressive. And why would, why would you want to bog that, that ability, that natural human ability down? with something that is really meant for something just to churn and burn like a machine. Um, and so that's where the, the, this, this stuff comes out of a love of humanity, not out of a, a contempt for it is where I see it. I love that phrase. 
Well, and even on uh, when I release these podcast episodes, to me, the the joy I get <clears throat> is the conversations. This is the easy part. This is the fun part. And um, I, I would love some automation just in what I do is very, very minor, very simple. I'll upload an audio file to SoundCloud, then it populates and I need to copy links. And I do that you know, probably three or four or five times. And I've built a little process and it's just like the, the tediousness of that. And it, it's 15 minutes, but I'm just impatient and easily distractible. But I could imagine, you know, and I've had to do this as an engineer where it's like, all right, creating these reports and this, that, and the other. And yeah, if I'm getting tired or hungry, my accuracy goes down and my attention to detail goes down. And if it's a critical process, I could totally see how that could have a huge ripple downstream either immediately or way down the road. And, you know, we've all been in factories or situations where it's like, how did this happen? And it's usually a tiny pebble that gets dropped into the, the metaphorical lake that has a, a ripple that goes downstream. Yeah, exactly. No. And when you, when you think about what possibilities exist for this, it's a, it's a part of a larger life cycle of how do you approach not just automation from a simple task, but how, how do you make decisions going forward about what applications you do want to build and what ERPs can really do for you and what your people are doing for you. And so it's a part of a cohesive strategy where you're now not trying to overburden one of those other traditional avenues for problem solving. You now have this extra tool set to come in and say, hey, is instead of having us think about everything the software can do because we want to try and you know customize this and you know figure out if we can even get permission to use these APIs to do that, why don't we just take this part out of the equation and now let's make this thing look even more um, more approachable and have it actually be more efficient. And so it plugs into everything that a business does to make itself successful, to reduce waste, uh, to increase quality, reduce error reduction. And at the very end, you'll save some money. I mean, you know, these things do have licensing costs to them and yeah, they can, they can get a little expensive, but in the grand scheme of things, if you know, you're spending, you know, hundred thousand dollars a year on licensing, depending on what your your bot solution looks like and they're all they're all roughly the same um some are a little more expensive than others um based on usage uh or just based on how licensing works but at the end of the day if you're taking advantage of business solutions that are allowing you to be more profitable that are allowing you to make your people happy and and people also don't think about turnover um if you're losing less people to turn over and you are able to keep your employees happy, what do you, what price do you put on that? That's the, that's the cost that nobody thinks about are those soft costs, those intangibles. And I've come across that when I've sold professional development and technology solutions and everybody thinks that time is free. And it's not. And having those discussions 
Yeah, especially the turnover. I mean, what's the rate? It's like what three x their salary to find, replace, and train someone, and it's just um, it's not ever really thought about in those terms. It's something I always bring up. Exactly, and then then you think about the other hidden costs of you know what if you have an employee that's bogged down by this, and then they go to your competition. Well, now you've essentially funded your competition with your lack of forethought. And, you know, there, there's something else that what, what did that cost you, you know, on, on the real back end of things? What is that going to do to you in the future? What does that do to your brand equity as a company? You know, people are jumping ship for what you're doing because you lack innovation, because you, you know, aren't able to keep your people engaged and happy and progressive. Um, then, you know, how do you as a business still promote what it is that you do successfully and how do you get people in the door going forward when the person next door is being more innovative they are caring for people they're offering these types of solutions these types of avenues and they're really offering a kind of job enhancement that if you just took an extra you know whatever time it takes for you to to make that jump and that leap to say you know let me look at something a little bit differently and then force that little bit of discomfort now to prevent huge uncomfortable moves later on. Well, and as a, as an implementation perspective, I like that you're meeting customers where they're at and not coming in with another behemoth like a, an SAP or ERP system. Hey, we're going to rip this out. It's going to be five years. It's like, tell us what you've got and where you're at and let us work with that. And I like the, Kind of, I know it's not seamless because there's nothing in technology that's <laughs> that. Oh, easy. true. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I like that it's sort of look. You don't have to, you know, sunset anything. It just let's figure out some processes and and go from there. And I always, yeah, just sitting in the, at that uh, seminar, I was like, that's pretty cool from a sales guy perspective. It is, and you know, you know, even from a company philosophy, you know, if I were just to you know briefly you know touch on how you know, Optimix tends to think is that we've always been that way with our customers. We don't want to come in with this big bang approach and just, you know, inundate you with, you know, here's this giant monster that you have to work with, or it's just not going to work for us. You know, our general core philosophy is that we meet you where you at anyway. And these tools just dovetailed perfectly into that philosophy. And so you're not forcing a philosophy down someone's throat you're bringing them along and you're solving a problem with them and you're, you really are a part of their team. I love that approach. Um, what are some of the, and if I could remember them from the, the overview, I would bring them up, but I just remember, can you give me a couple examples on like pre and post on some clients that you've worked with? I'm not asking for names or anything. Oh, sure. Yeah. Proprietary, can, but yeah. What yeah. is the impact been? I'll give you I'll give you a classic example from one of the early uh, early companies that we met. There was a um, a large uh, manufacturer of um, that's they do they do a bunch of different things, but one particular uh, product line that they had was actually based in Mexico, and uh, they were having people checking invoices. And so what the way they were doing it was they would have one person under an invoice. And then they would have another person enter in that same invoice simultaneously. And to some degree, you would have two people 
entering in data and if the data matched you knew it was correct if one person was off you knew that that had to be reviewed and so you, you were paying for essentially people to double double work to do the same work twice and using their own double work to check it and so that was you're having to hire double every time you're trying to um, you're trying to actually get a invoice going forward Sorry, that was that was an Alexa reminder in the background. I'm not sure if you heard that. <laughs> speaking of technology but automation, speaking of technology automation, there's one there's one kind of robot, right? Um, but no, it's interesting. Um, so um, so when it comes to those invoices that were interviewed twice, you know, there was that was the way that they were trying to you know figure out how to be accurate. Well, come in. Our solution with RPA, we were able to build essentially a not a, a fully autonomous process, but a semi-autonomous. So it was triggered by a user to actually run and with a smart reader tie, component tied into it. And so this bot would go in, grab the, the digital PDF, and we taught the smart reader to look for what would look like an invoice. And so we would have to build in some learning in there with the bot. And so it figured out, okay, an invoice number is typically looks like this and it knew, knew to look because sometimes invoices were in the top right sometimes the numbers were in the top left there was a lot of data that was the same but it would be in different locations depending on where the invoice came from and so the invoice would come in the bot would extract the data and it would enter in rapidly and so it could clear 20 30 40 50 invoices in a handful of minutes which would have taken two people several hours to do and so you took one of those people out of the equation the bot was the second person so you took now half of your staff that would have been doing that now they're doing something else now they can go work wherever else the business needs them and so eventually if i remember correctly the same client then was able to take both people out of the equation and retool how they actually work that going forward now You'd be naive to think that that yeah, are we gonna you know keep hiring those people? Did we keep some of those? No, obviously not, right? But you now could take existing staff and then move them somewhere else. And then if people were truly that was the only thing that they were doing and they were redundant, that was a that was a bad hire to begin with. And so it's exposing bad hires. So for them, it exposed the unnecessary unnecessary hiring. It exposed hiring people that really didn't do want to do the job to begin with. And if they had other stuff that they were just pulled into. So those people are now doing something else. And then the bot was able to run 100% error free after a while once it learned the invoicing process. And they were able to save hundreds of hours a week um, in, in just review cost. Um, that's one small example um, where there's an impact. Um, the second example that comes to mind with uh, one of our other clients, I, I can't mention too much details about this bot process that we offered, but in that particular case, they spent very little money on actually building the process, which was a fairly complicated process. And the amount of savings is actually making them money because it's reducing um, triggers for alert responses that they have in the field. And so normally what would happen was their call centers would get spun up whenever alerts would happen, a specific kind of alert, and they would have to deploy vehicles in the field and have people on standby taking calls and there's outages and now the bot picks up whatever alerts they have does the appropriate writing flips the flip appropriate flags doesn't trigger an over response 
and the 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 lack in response is actually netting them 10 times what it costs them to build the bot per month. Mm. So um, those are two there. And again, these are two extremes, right? It's not always the case where it benefits that much, but even if it doesn't net you a profit, even if it doesn't net you that kind of employee savings, it's doing something to have you think about your business differently. And that, that can lead to change greater change down the line. So it sounds like you go in and evaluate the current processes, whatever they are. And are people, how objective and how aware are they when the results of that initial process and time study come back? And I guess my question is, do they just, do they do it because they've always done it? And how much of that do you have to overcome when they're just like, well, yeah, we've always had two people doing invoices. You know, it depends. I mean, everyone's different, right? Some clients will come in, you know, I had one client, this was a while back um, in the oil and gas industry. And um, again, not mentionings, but this guy just wanted to just straight cut staff and he was looking for an excuse uh, to do that. So, um, even with all the warnings we gave me, he's like, look, this, you won't necessarily have to do that. <laughs> this will make your business better. <laughs> so you have some preconceived notions of what it can do from the employee reduction side. There are people that are just like that. Then on the other end, you have people that are aware, but maybe you're just trying to test the water. So I guess everyone's at a different stage and in terms of level of enthusiasm and adoption and awareness of their own business, um, some people will think that a process is extremely beneficial to, oh, we want to definitely automate this. And by the time we get done with the conversation, we'll end up convincing them that, no, what you brought to us isn't necessarily an ideal use case because the, the complexity will be high and the general return on the initial investment will be very low. But then somebody will mention something in a side conversation about this highly repetitive thing that's out there where the person's literally, person, you know, Joe is taking you know, data from Excel spreadsheet A and putting it into B and they just, you know, move it over. And it's like, well, wait, what about that? That's a simple process, low complexity. How They're only spending a few minutes on doing it. Okay, so maybe it's not great. So we have to look at time spent as well. Um, so sometimes we'll get in the conversation and we'll identify something that they didn't even think of as a process that could be automated. And we'll say, hey, why don't you try this for your, for your proof of concept or for your pilot? Um, and everyone comes in at different different levels, but it's the level of awareness as to to get back to your answering your question. The level of awareness coming in can shift. Um, sometimes it's right on, sometimes it's completely off base, and then sometimes it's somewhere you know where it's it's just the things around the process that end up being the targets, not necessarily what was brought to us in the first place. I remember a couple of jobs ago, I think when we first met probably eight, 10 years ago, we had a um, document imaging and automation thing that we were selling, kind of a workflow automation. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to an oil and gas client, field services actually, mm-hmm. and they were responsible for putting the staff on the rigs to actually drill and, and do that. And they had at least got technical in that their staff would fill out the Excel sheets and then send them back once a month to do payroll. 
But, and I, and I asked this question, I said, and I'll tell the story. I was like, you literally do this? Cause what they had to do is they had to do one stack of paper. They'd print out all the Excel sheets, stack them up and do payroll. And then they would separate all the sheets out for um, accounts receivable for all the different uh, oil companies they were working with. And I, I stopped and I'm not the, the process consultant here, but I just asked the question. I go, wait, you, you literally, it was like office space. You literally sort the, the paper twice. And she stopped and she looked at me for a couple seconds. She's like, yeah. And then I asked, well, how long does it take to do payroll? And they would pull in, you know, the, the accountant and then the person at the front desk. And she was in uh, another role and it would take four people five days to do payroll. And this is back when oil and gas was kind of booming. And I said, well, what happens if you add 20% to your workforce? At what point does the snake start eating its tail and you're doing payroll 10, 12, 15 days a month? Like, what is that? You know, and it was just one of those things where just asking questions and kind of probing a little bit. And they just, again, you know, most some of those companies run everything on Excel and they just like, well, this is how we do it. And I was like, yeah, and I just was stunned just from, you know, not from that. That was a bad thing. I just was thinking, wow, I, you know, I was struck with the same sense of wonder that they did once we kind of got to the root of all that. Yeah. Oh, and, and the, the thing that also is, is a huge surprise in, in that exact same type of scenario, the amount of tribal knowledge that people hold on to um, that, you know, you have, you know, Doris who's been doing this for, you know, 30 years. And Doris knows that when invoice comes from this client that they are able to say, oh, well, this one has this exception. And it's like finding all of those uh, exceptions and, you know, lo locating all of those use cases to even build a cohesive process becomes just an absolute cluster to untangle. And, you know, those are other scenarios where we run into where, you know, Doris gets this invoice from clients, you know, XYZ. And normally we do invoices this way, but, but when it comes from XYZ, I know that I put it this way and I add this percentage on and this is what we do. And it's like, no one knows that. And it's not documented anywhere. And so when you ask people for documentation, hey, is this a documented process? And they'll say, yes. Well, then you go ahead and ask Doris, like, hey, is this document? She's like, no, I just know how to do it that way. And so we run into it's those. Post -it note. <laughs> it's a post-it exact, And you laugh. I've seen post-it notes on, uh, this is when I was in food service industry, uh, a large food distributor many, many years ago. And there was one lady that did accounting and there was just post-it notes everywhere. And that, that was her process. And there was no official documentation of anywhere. And so if I had to come in and, figure that out and try to build a bot process around that, that may take me the entire two weeks just to figure out what it looks like to put it in a cohesive, logical, if then type of layout, just to get this thing to do one process. And so those are other use cases, by the way, where that may not be a great process, because if that's all that we're doing, is it just this one piece that's the exception we try to automate? And if that's the case, is it worth spending the licensing fee for that? And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes it's just yes, because we can roll it into everything else. And so 
untangling that tribal knowledge and untangling those those little nuances you know those those that's not what human creativity is for you know exception handling to useless minutia is not creative thinking that is that is <laughs> not what that is, that is not what that means <laughs> well i i struggle with organization and things like that and i've bargained with myself that okay i hate getting organized but i hate looking for stuff more and when i'm trying to find my phone or my keys or things like that because i was distracted and set them down it takes me out of that flow and out of that space and that's just a personal example yeah. being being around the house and if you factor in a 50 person 100 person organization and uh, you know, decision fatigue, you know, Einstein wore the same clothes and, you know, had the same thing for breakfast. Like it's not an important decision that needs brain power. Save that for something that really matters to your, your life or your company. And, and the more that I dig into company culture and then processes and automation, and I see the inefficiencies, like, like I'll be at a, at a restaurant and I'll just watch and it's like, Oh, that, the cashier went to go get the food out of there and this, and then now this is backing up and just, wow. Like, you know, it's a curse and maybe a, a superpower to see, you know, those inefficiencies, but mm. so you multiply that in one restaurant and if it's a national chain, they're all doing that. That's just money flying out the window. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, there's tons of inefficiencies like that in our process that's, that creates that decision fatigue. The, the more of that that we can move on to just things that help us take care of that. And so we don't have to add any extra thought to it. The more efficient we will be and the more energy we'll have to actually dedicate to solving the problem and you know you add on useless piece after useless piece after useless piece and then you start finding that you're placing importance in things that are not important at all and we don't want that and that's part of you know why i enjoy what i do you know i'm not going into sell you a thing i'm going in to figure out you know how what does it look like to be a part of your team and I'm going to come in with an outsider's perspective and say, okay, well, so this is what it feels like to be a part of your team. I hate myself and everything I'm doing. And let me tell you why, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and coming in to, to bring in a different level of expectation of what this could be. And what it usually ends up resulting in is a new level of joy in the people that are working. And, and now, you don't have to worry about getting bogged down in, in just, in just being frustrated. Well, and I want to uh, draw like a finer point on something that you had said, and you're, you're think probably the second or third, um, I'd say salesperson or biz dev person I've ever talked to. And it was less about, what you're selling and what you're doing for your customers and more about your philosophy and your integrity. And, you know, you've said it a couple of times and I just want to call it out that 
you know, you go in to take care of the customer and you're not selling them something. And you've, you know, in the probably 10 years that I've known you have always just been incredibly forthright and honest and just, you know, I, I, I just wanted to point that out that you do take care of me and you take care of customers. And that's why I wanted to talk about it and just talk to you less about RPA and just more about how you do business, which I think is just as important. It is, you know, and I think people, you know, and, and the thing is, whenever you come in with a with the with the sales hat on and you show up, everyone frames you the same way, especially if they're getting inundated with cold call after cold call and with, you know, here's, you know, our little thing, you know, it, it also comes down to expectation, right? What are you, what do you want out of this interaction and you know sometimes i do catch myself with a casual conversation and say you know here's kind of what it is and i leave it and i leave it alone and i try to figure out how the conversation is going to start and i try to figure out you know is this the right time for us to even talk because sometimes it's not and you know and sometimes i'm not the right person to do that and if you come in with a solutions attitude you will always you will want to help the person more than you will want to sell the person. And, you know, I've had, you know, people come up to me and say, Hey, what do you, you know, think about this? Can your company do this? Like, yeah, we could, but you know, um, you know, how do you want to do business? And then I listen to them and they say, this is how I want to do this. Like, you know, that's not how I do things, but my friend Matt over here, can do it that way for you because that's how he runs his business. And I think that might be a better match for you, both personality and, and business process wise. And, and then sometimes it's just a personality, you know, um, conflict where people just, you're not the right person for that personality. And you have to be self-aware enough to know that, okay, I'm not, I'm, I immediately know that you need someone that's going to take a certain level of communication with you and a certain style that will work with you better um and there's very few people that I, I i i can't figure out a way because for me it's understanding what do you mean when you say what and people will often use terms and will want to express a need or desire to do something and then the terms that they're using with you you have to be able to say okay what did you mean by that like because when i say that i mean this mm -hmm. when you say that do you mean the same thing? And you'll be surprised how often the, the answer is, well, no, I meant, I meant actually this. Oh, okay. <laughs> that changes the conversation. But it's being willing to understand that even though we all are, let's say, you for, for, and again, I'm going to frame this in the, in the English-speaking you know, countries because there's a, there's a lot of ways people communicate around the world and, and language is a huge determinant in conveying meaning. But just because we speak the same language doesn't mean we're saying the same thing. Even when we're using the same words, even when we're saying the same phrases, we tend to listen to our, we tend to listen to our inner meaning and express it in a way that we think someone will understand it. But the two often are disconnected. <laughs> yep. So true. <laughs> so true. Didn't mean to make this a philosophical. <laughs> I'll die a try, but it ended up going there. <laughs> no, I, I'm glad you said that. Cause like I said, I, I wanted to have you on just more about your character than about what you're selling, but they, you know, in some ways are inseparable, but you know, they're very, very important. 
Oh, so. absolutely. Um, take me to what uh, Namek is. You're the VP of Namek Denver. And yeah. talked about that uh, via email and a couple times. Of course, yeah. So uh, Namek uh, stands just to, you know, uh, take the abbreviation out. It's the National Association for Multi-Ethnicity in Communications. It used to be in cable. Um, started in 1980 uh, out of, I want to say, I think it's New York is where it started. And the organization was primarily designed to bring inclusivity and culture to the cable industry, TV cable industry. So your uh, multi-service offering providers like your Comcasts, your NBC Universals, you know, all the all the brands you know and love that you see on TV that support television and communications and radio. And it is an organization founded on the principles of bringing inclusion and diversity to companies um, in their workforce and um, representation across African-American, Native American, um, uh, Hispanic communities, uh, LGBTQ. I'm sure I'm missing uh, a letter in there as I, I want to always make sure I'm including everybody in that. But, you know, everyone has a different story to tell and your perspective and how you grew up um, with the struggles that you grew up based on your, your background, your ethnicity, that's important and that shapes and frames how you solve problems. And so NAMIC is designed to progress that message along. And I, I was brought in uh, as VP when the um, former vice president ended up moving to Alabama, very lovely, lovely gentleman named Garth David, who um, asked with the our president uh, um, here in Denver to ask me to take on that role. And, you know, in Denver, we have a really diverse community. And um, NEMIC Denver, I think it now stands, I think we're somewhere over three, 400 members. Last I checked, I have to double check the numbers, but um, I know it's a terrible thing for me not to know. Um, but we, you know, we work with, people in those companies. And the thing is, you know, I'm the only, I'm, as far as I know, the only software company, a party organization. And just because it says in communications, that's the diversity part. That's, you know, NAMIC needs to be diverse in industry as well. And so with the, the new national president, uh, Shawnee Washington uh, coming in, um, she wants to bring in other companies that are not just your traditional cable companies and media companies, software companies like an Optimics like a Quandary Ventures, we are all in the business of communicating to each other. And that is a universal truth. And NAMIC is an organization that when you are a part of it, you now are giving a, a, a verbal and an understanding handshake with someone from a diverse background. Um, and it's very important. I mean, you know, Matt, you've seen, you know, we've, we've been a part of a lot of networking uh, um, collaborations like Colorado Technology Association, and there's the AGT for the accounting side. There's, there's all these organizations that are out there. And, you know, having an dynamic be a part of your, your business, your industry, it's just showing that there's a cause and a care for diversity. And there's always a cause or a care of diversity, whether or not you are a part of a, a multicultural organization like NAMIC. But I think when you are truly a part of it, you gain the benefit of seeing the world through someone else's eyes. And that's where I see, 
you know, Namek for me as a, as a big personal touch point. I mean, I, I, I didn't fully grow up in this country. I was born in South Africa, moved here, you know, early nineties and have a, you know, European, I'm Greek by heritage and, you know, kind of growing up in different cultures and just looking at me, you wouldn't necessarily see that, but how I've experienced life growing up, uh, coming from a different country, uh, coming with, you know, different ways of communicating with my peers growing up as a kid here partially and then you know moving through life you tend to see things a little bit differently and I feel like Namek has has a home for my heart there and um, I guess there's no better way to explain it it's just finding a way for others to speak and see each other you know, and see the perspectives that they bring. Because yes, we're all human beings, but we all have a fundamentally different experience that is valuable and that needs to be shared. Well, and I think it makes, <clears throat> excuse me, an organization stronger because if you just look at diversifying the talent based on experience, that's good. But if you're opening the awareness to your mind of, the diversity by gender and by culture, then you've broadened the, the knowledge base so much more that it can only benefit you know, the, the, the tasks, it can benefit the project, the company, the bottom line, customer experience. If you just open that up to getting all those perspectives, if for no, no other reason other than you know profit margin, but you know there's it just makes for a stronger um, effort across yeah. the board. No, and you know what a phrase comes to mind, um, and I I don't know that it's necessarily unique to this individual that that told it to me, but I, I remember a friend of mine saying being being good to people is good business, and. What does that mean, being good to people? That means being inclusive of your culture, your heritage, your struggles, and you know, acknowledging that, but not necessarily just acknowledging it, but embracing it. And I think that has to be done in any organization. When we were getting trained up for Denver Startup Week, Charter Communications did a short seminar on being inclusive and more from the disabilities perspective and something that I, and again, not ignorant to this fact, but wasn't completely aware. They talked about invisible disabilities and mm -hmm. Mark that was leading the uh, discussion, he has hearing aids and, it, and never really thought about that. And that, Make sure you have, and, and just simple things that were not hard to do. Make sure you have a couple of seats reserved up front and say, hey, if anybody needs to, uh, you know, be around the speakers and have a you know, better volume, please come up front or visual impairment. And it's not that, you know, somebody is completely blind and walking with a cane, but maybe they just have a hard time seeing, do the same thing and just make them feel welcome and and understanding that there was invisible disabilities. And I was like, oh, okay, not, and, not a problem, easy to do. Cool, thanks for letting me know. 
Well, and then you're also talking about user experience there, you know, Absolutely. and then we're, we're, we're coming in from, you know, the technologist's point of view. It's like, what, what do you want your user experience to be? And if you are a, an American with disabilities, um, you're going to experience the world differently. And what is a good user experience for you is not a good, is not, you know, for what is a good, whether what is a good user experience for you and I is not necessarily a good, if, if not a detrimental user experience for someone that has disabilities, that, are, that is visually impaired, that is hearing impaired, or that has uh, motor, motor issues, you know, in terms of how they interact with technology when you have a prosthetic, right? So, you know, being aware of someone's perspective, you know, makes you think about how you design an experience for that person much differently. And, you know, having these groups that, you know, bring that awareness makes us all better people for it, makes us solve problems in, in a more holistic way. Mm -hmm. And as a, personally, as a white American male, <laughs> I try yeah. to expand my just awareness of that and just um, understand that the, the world does not revolve around my particular set of experiences. And I just, I love just meeting people and learning from that. And just, and again, coming at it from a, a, a space of humility and just that I don't know everything. And it's not that I'm knocking myself down or it's not a confidence thing. It's like, I generally enjoy learning and yeah. want to, Hey, you know, tell me about South Africa and tell me about this. And, you know, and just asking questions like, Oh, I, you know, if you have a prosthetic, like I had a, a great conversation with my buddy, Aaron, he had lost his uh, arm in a motorcycle accident and had the, the coolest looking carbon fiber Terminator two <laughs> hand. And I talked to him for 30 minutes about it. I was poking it and I was like, Oh, how does that work? And you know, what does it do? And just being, fascinated and curious and respectful and just, yeah. but again, just not ignoring that he's got a carbon fiber hand, but let's talk about it. Let's just be interested and genuine and conversational about it and building a, building a connection. Yeah. And it's funny because people, you know, when you, you see this happen a lot, you know, especially if you're kind of that third audience observer, right. And you see two people interacting and you see one person with a clear disability and the other person is trying to like not look at what's going on. And it's like, no, don't do that. That just makes it more awkward. You know, don't like <laughs> blurt out also. I mean, there's, there's a level of decorum that goes with that social interaction and, you know, acknowledging, but not necessarily, you know, to acknowledging, not totally avoiding and then having that, that little bit of extra, just just manners, right? As far as as, as human beings are going, I, I think we forget that simple words often are the best way to describe how we should interact with someone. And manners, to me, is the highest form of class. You know, so mm -hmm. and it's the it's the, it's the best way to really build that relationship with someone and show that respect. Um, I don't know. It's the simple stuff. Always to me is is oftentimes the most overlooked and the most important. Agreed. And speaking of class, this will be a great segue to my, the next thing I want to talk to you about 
is um, watches. And I, oh, I, I need to like put some context to this, that you are one of the classiest individuals I know, but also the least um, snooty about it. And you're, you're just, I think you like nice things, but you're not a snob about it. And with that, um, let's talk about watches. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that's a subject I'm going to have to, uh, you know, hold back quite a bit on because that's, I could talk hours and hours and hours about the subject. Um, but yeah, I got into collecting at a very, very young age. And then really I didn't obviously acquire my first piece, you know, my first personal piece until, you know, get your big boy job after college. And then, you know, you actually have money that you can get something with. But, um, the first watch I was ever given was a, a 1960s stainless steel Omega constellation with a date. Um, and I was given that watch by my grandfather, my dad's dad, and um, he gave that to me when I was I think, seven years old. I had no business owning this watch, Matt. I had no business owning this watch. <laughs> I had no business wearing this watch where I wore it. Somehow took care of it its entire life and watch still with me today, of course. And um, you know, that's kind of what's what struck the chord for me was that one first piece. And, you know, you're and in my family, we have a few watchmakers that, uh, you know, they're no longer they're no longer with us, sadly. But, um, you know, uh, I, you know, we grew up around the stuff and it was important to get give the gift of a watch. It was something that was seen as a very special thing in my family. And, um, I've become the custodian of most of my, you know, the, at least in my immediate family, their watch collections, you know, some family members just said, you know what, I'm just going straight to Apple watch, you know, screw all this mechanical, <laughs> you know, analog, you know, arcane things. I'm like, all right, I like, I like the old and the classy and, um, you know, a good watch for someone is, is extremely subjective, extremely personal. And for me, I collect because of that one memory. And, you know, been collecting for now, Jesus, we're going on over over 30 years now at this point. And um, it's sad to say, you know, there's a lot of watches I've bought and sold and traded, bought and sold and traded. And it becomes a bit like a prion disease, right? You get the one, you just, <laughs> it just infects you. And for me, you know, it's a very, it, it doesn't matter whether I still own the watch or not. I still have the same sentimental attachment to the memory of it, whether it's still in my collection or not. And I tend to, I tend to focus on specific, you know, usability of, of a thing. Right. And, you know, um, I think someone, and I can't remember who I'm going to, I, I'm actually, I'm actually going to take this quote from someone, um, very famous, um, that was on a, on a, a there's a watch blog publication out there called Hodinkee, wonderful online publication. How do you spell it? Uh, Hodinkee, H O D I N K E E. Uh, started by a guy uh, Ben Clymer uh, and and a couple others. If I if, again, I'm, I'm I'm probably bastardizing the history of the finding, but Ben is the main is the main guy that founded it, and uh, it was one of kind of one of the you know bigger online watch publications uh, that was around, and they've they've got quite a bit of clout these days. Um, but there was one of the recent interviews they do. They do these talking watches segments, and the one question you ask a watch collector or any person that's into into the hobby. Um, is, you know, if, if you ask them why they collect, the one answer you will never hear is to tell the time. Hmm. You will never hear that. There's always a story like the story I started with. But for me, 
you know, um, I take, I take just as much joy out of wearing this little hundred dollar pulsar led watch that i have with a red led dial that's cool as hell from 1970 i've seen that that's cool watch i like that it's a it's a wacky watch. they've actually recently re-released the type of watch again so it's like oh cool that's that's coming back again nice um as much as i wear you know um the omega or any of the other watches that i have in my collection but it's there's always there's always a smile on my face when I look at the time. And the main thing I do is when I look at the time, it always brings me back to the present. Because when you're looking at your watch, what, what time are you looking for? The time it is right now. So, mm-hmm. But I don't know what, I mean, you met me, you know how this works. I'm going to ask you a question, kind of turning it back on you. What do you think of the hobby, at least from the outset? And now what do you think, <laughs> now that you've kind of had enough of these long, boring conversations with me going forward? I'm fascinated by it and I could easily see myself going off the deep end with watches. I don't because I put my money into bikes. And so much like you on the watch side, I have a garage full of bikes and from you know the the uninitiated, it would look maybe like the colors are different but they're all kind of the same. Whereas to me, there's a a very different function to each one of them. And it's a connection to my friends. And I got into it, you know, I I mowed lawns as a kid for buying or getting money to buy a Schwinn 10 speed. Then I would love to have that bike back and it wouldn't fit me. And it just, uh, just to have it and just to see it would be great. But the it's not the physical act of riding. The exercise makes me feel good, but it's the laughter and the conversations on these machines. And I do have, I think, six watches. And I, I go super cheap, again, because I go expensive on the bikes. But I could easily go off the deep end on watches and I totally understand. And so I don't take the first hit because I would just be <laughs> gone. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, And it, it gets bad. I mean, and also depending on what you buy first, there's certain brands and certain types of watches and it'll, it affects everybody differently. Right. And you know, the appreciation of, you know, what the collecting is, you know, cause I don't collect clocks, right. There's, if you collect clocks and you're into like gathering astrolabes and you're, you're getting, getting all of this really interesting stuff that encompasses the whole art of time telling and neurology. Yeah. You, you're a different kind of collector. You know, I'm, I am very strictly a watch guy. I like this, this, these small little mechanical things that are doing its own little calculation to tell you the most simple thing it possibly could tell you. And, you know, I don't even, I don't even use half the functions correctly. I'm, I mean, the watch I'm wearing right now, the date's not even set correctly, but at least the time, <laughs> at least I know what, at least I know the time is correct, but it's important that at least the time telling aspect is accurate. Cause I do want something that's working, you know, not using it for the date feature. Cool. I've, I've, I've chosen to extricate myself from that particular <laughs> experience of the date feature. Um, but you know, and this favorite fee, I mean, you know, you'll ask any watch coach, what's your favorite complication? My favorite complication, I don't even know, because for me, it's so un, 
realistically expensive that I just like, you know what, maybe that's a 10, 20 year goal. Then it's, it's called the grand summary. And it, all it is is to say is this watch, when you pull a specific lever back, it chimes the time to you. Mm. And to me, that's the coolest thing ever. Cause you're now, you're now taking time that is involving a visual thing and you're making it an audible thing. And that to me, I think is the coolest complication even beyond all the, the the crazier stuff, which is far more complicated, like your lunar calendars, your your leap year calendars, your you know uh, all these different calculations you can work into these little machines. Um, the grand summary to me, it's it, you know how much cooler can you get than that? You're 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 creating you're you're creating you're giving your watch a voice. Um, Ooh, I like that, that description. Would, it is, you know, it's, 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 it's letting something so ephemeral and so made up when you really think about it. Right. And you're, you're giving it, you're giving it the ability to speak to you. And that's what I love about that complication. Um, very expensive <laughs> to get into one of those. <laughs> They're not easy to make um, and getting the sound right. And all there's so much you can, you can go down that rabbit hole. But that's easily my favorite complication of all time. Um, and it's not, it's not particularly useful, but you know, I guess if you don't have to look at your watch all the time, I guess it has some use there. So that you may have answered my question, like the, the lottery watch, you win Powerball. Is that the one you're going to get? Or is there another one? Oh my God. Don't even ask me that question. Um, the lottery watch, that would be a complication. I would then, and the thing is, I think I would know which brand I would go for it, but I truthfully don't know. Honestly, that would be the one that I would target for sure. That would be the okay. Let's 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 try and find one. And you know that I, you know even if I had the money, let's say today, it would take me four months to even find the one I want, if I could even get the one that I want, because they're mm. also very exclusive. I mean, not everybody can be allowed to buy them, which to me is absurd. If you have the money, you know, if you have the money, and if I have the money and you have the inventory, this should be an easy conversation, but it doesn't always go that way. <laughs> In the watch collecting world, it's, it's, it can be a little bit weird that way. What's the favorite one you have in your collection right now? Man, oh, the favorite one in my collection right now. And I know oh, it's kind of goodness. asking like favorite bike or favorite child, but what's... God, that is tough. Yeah. Maybe frequency uh, of wearing. What's the one that you well, wear more Well, than favorite others? child, I only have one, so that, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> thank God, thank God. No, but as far as... Man, some and I don't want to go with a cliche answer. I've heard I've heard responses from other collectors like, "What's the favorite watch?" It's like all the one you're wearing right now, and it's like, okay, that's a little bit of a cop out. But I don't know, man. If I were to really say my favorite watch of all time, it's probably still that Omega Constellation, hmm. the, the first one for me. And I have other watches I wear far more often that watch. I mean, you've got your your diving. I'm a big diving watch guy, even though I'm not a big diver, which is bizarre in my opinion you know you collect dive watches yet you have never been actually diving john you barely go snooker uh, snorkeling so you know um that i find is a weirdness in in my own collecting. i just like how they look and how they function but um i wear the diving watch the most often but my favorite of all time is still that the constellation it, it reminds me of my grandfather it reminds me of what is really important in life um you know, and it's not just the family connection. It's, it's the connection to 
how we all use how how we all have so little time together when we think about it and how we really should appreciate that and you know if i if i'm going to take this conversation in a bit of a turn in what's going on right now with current events and how we're no longer able to see our friends and have that warm embrace with an individual, even that warm visual embrace, right? Um, it's it's something that, that that watch reminds me of, you know, what's important? It's important that you can have a tactile connection to a thing that is so very temporary and so underappreciated. And that's why it's my favorite. It, it, it reminds me of what's important. Um, you know, and I, you know, my, my wife gives me the eye rolls whenever I'm, Hey, should you think I should buy this? And she always says, no, Jean, think of, you know, the house and stuff like that. And <laughs> she's right. She's never wrong. Uh, when it comes to that stuff at all, she's, she's really never wrong at all. Um, I'm probably earning some major points by even saying this. Right. But, um, you know, it's true. Um, reminds me of what's important and not to forget and to always remember. Well said. Well said. And just for context, we're recording this, um, April 3rd, 2020. I, I have started doing that when I've been recording these just so people have a, a timestamp. I, I always want the episodes to be timeless, but yeah, you know, there's certain circumstances in the planet that, uh, just for sake of reference, I've just been noting. So. Yeah, no. And I think it's important that, you know, you know, we, as we, as people, we, as, you know, human beings, fellow Americans, um, you know, citizens of humanity, so to speak, to, to coin, to, to borrow that cliche, you know, I don't think we really appreciated each other as much as we, we, we do now. And there are still those of us that are probably, you know, we'll hear this and go, Oh, you know, thanks for taking the sappy right turn, John, or a sappy left turn, whichever direction you want to take that. But it's not, it's not a joke to me. Um, it's, it shouldn't be a joke to anyone that what we have with each other is the most important thing and how we treat each other going forward um, and during is more important than anyone will ever give credit for. Well said, well said. And um, yeah, with that, I, I wish we were sitting across from each other and having a, a, a bourbon, but we'll save that for a couple months from now. <laughs> yes, definitely will be required. Absolutely. So I'll post links to this where people can find you, but where can people get a hold of you at Optimix or if they want to check out Namek and the impact it can have yeah, on their organizations? I've of course. So, uh, Namic, um, if you just type into Google, just N A M I C, uh, or Namic Denver, you'll find the site pretty easily there. Um, Optimix, uh, a little harder to search for. Our name kind of sounds a little weird, uh, but it's optimized teams mix is where it comes from. Uh, so if you just go to optimix.com, that's O P T E A M I X.com. Um, You'll find uh, me if you want to reach out to me directly. LinkedIn is the best place to find me. Shoot me a message, say hi. Even if you just want to chat and hang out, if you want to talk watches all day long, if you want to talk technology. I mean, even I have my limits on that, but I'd be happy. To, I'd be happy to chat about that as well. John, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. <laughs>